let me take this from the top. I want to talk about a universal human phenomenon that I experience most frequently in grocery stores, and that is unexpectedly running into somebody you didn't expect to see there. When you see somebody in public you didn't know, and then you have this initial reaction like, ooh, do I have time for this? Uh, you know, maybe you're, you've got your, your headphones in and you're, you're listening to a podcast or you're in between work and dinner and you're trying to just catch what you need really quickly and, and get on and, and get moving. Uh, but there, there is this experience that we have, and, and I, I've seen it often, and, and often I've, I've seen it from others who, who see me in a, in a grocery store, and it's like that experience of when you're a kid, and you see your teacher in the grocery store, and you're like, wait, you don't live <laughs> in your classroom? What are you doing here? Uh, I've seen some of your faces when you see me at the grocery store and you're like, uh, what are you doing here? I'm like, the the same thing you are. Uh, Anyways, uh, that happens sometimes. And, And I have to confess that, you know, I am susceptible to this phenomenon myself. Uh, Most Recently, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was uh, at a community art show called Art Hop and was in this uh, sort of art gallery that only had two rooms and one exit. And into the room came uh, this couple who uh, I've had a relational falling out with. (laughs) Haven't seen them in a couple of years. And I'm like, oh boy, I want to avoid them completely. And I, again, this is confession time. I, I got this completely wrong. Because they were in between me and the exit. There was no way for me to avoid interacting with this couple. And so I tried for as long as I could to, you know, sort of blend in uh, with the art gallery. And it was as hard as you would imagine, and, and so finally I just ripped the Band-Aid off, went to them, and did the quick, you know, there's no avoiding this, so hi, how are you, good to see you, hope you're well, and then just moved on right past it. And as I was reflecting on that encounter later, I was embarrassed and frankly ashamed at how I reacted in that situation. And it put me into contact with, with something inside me that um, is, is this sort of place where I realized that I, seeing them reminded me of something that I don't like to see in myself, something that I like to believe about myself, which is that given enough time and effort and energy, I can make everyone agree with me or like me or want to be in relationship with me. And that's not true in this case with these people. And so it made me reflect on on this reality that we're going to look at this morning, which is that we all, each of us, every human being who ever lived, has a void internally. 
And this void is one that we want to avoid. We each have this hole, this, these, these deep places within us that put us into touch with, with some sort of existential form of dread or some sort of fear or shame or some hunger or thirst that we have for something that when we come into contact with it, we feel powerless over it. We feel like it's, it's some black hole that's going to suck us in. And so we tend to want to avoid that thing within us or that thing that we experience within us, but that shows up in interactions between us. This, this separation, this void. And so we're continuing along uh, to, in, in a conversation on uh, the season of Lent. And we're looking at it through the lens of these interactions that Jesus has in his life uh, with, with people, religious leaders, or, or, or people he comes into contact with, with his life and his ministry and his teaching. And in the season of Lent, the wisdom of previous generations that has been handed on down to us today is that there are times and spaces where we can't avoid what we, need, what we try and attempt to avoid all, all the rest of the year. Like, we need times and spaces where we can step up and have the void stare back at us. <laughs> and that's what the season of Lent is. And what is in that void? Well, the preacher Fleming Rutledge, who I love immensely, she puts it like this, and it's, it's a tough pill to swallow, but she says, from beginning to end, the Holy Scriptures testify that the predicament of fallen humanity is so serious, so grave, so irremediable from within, that nothing short of divine intervention can rectify it. Oof. Woof. <laughs> That's tough. Now, some of us... Uh, Maybe you are not a follower of Jesus or you grew up in a tradition that was all fire and brimstone and this was basically uh, what you got a, a steady dose of every single Sunday of your life. And there are problems to this approach when it's done exclusively, when we, the only thing we focus on is our brokenness and our inability to fix ourselves or the world. There can be an overemphasis on this. But there are times and spaces where it is appropriate to recognize this truth and this reality. And the season of Lent is one of those moments when we express our brokenness and confession, but at the same time, we also receive the goodness of God's grace in absolution and forgiveness. But we tend to want to avoid this reality most of the time. And so we're going to look at a story from the life of Jesus this morning. It's going to show us how we address this void that we want to avoid. And so we're going to look at John's biography of Jesus' life, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. 
John 4. Jesus learned, this is very be, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus learned that the Pharisees, the sort of religious leaders of his day, had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, meaning John the baptizer, Jesus' cousin, uh, the forerunner of Jesus in his life and ministry. And the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they didn't like John and the movement that John had started. And so the fact that Jesus is kind of gaining in popularity over this person that they already felt was quite unpopular uh, was not something that they were pretty stoked about. And so Jesus leaves the region that he's in, Judea, and goes back once more to Galilee, sort of his, his home ground. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Now, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, this, this may come as a reminder, but just in case you're not, in this time and in this culture, Jews, the Jewish people of which Jesus is a part, and Samaritans did not engage or interact with each other. They were not homies. They did not like each other at all. And so, Samaria, next slide, you'll see on this map, is right in between where Jesus was and where he was headed. And the, in, in this map, the arrows are going in, uh, in the direction that Jesus is traveling. But you can see, if you can see sort of to uh, the right side of the map, that dotted gray line, this is the path that most Jewish people would take in order to avoid going through Samaria. They were so not interested in this group of people that they would go the long route around where they needed to go, adding a full other day to an already three-day-long journey just so that they did not have to interact with these people or, or get the, the grossness of the dust of Samaria on their feet. They did whatever they could to avoid this group of people. Not so with Jesus. Jesus had to go. Now, Jesus wasn't forced. He was compelled. Jesus, in the depth of his being, said, I need to go in there. And so he does. And so they're walking. And next slide. He sets up to a well. And when a Samaritan woman uh, came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Parenthetically, John adds, go back. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. If you're following along in your Bible, there's, there's probably a footnote that says, Jews and Samaritans did not share utensils. <laughs> Which is, to put it very mildly, Jews did not use the same 
utensils as Samaritans because they did not want to ritually defile themselves. They believed that the Samaritans were so ritually unclean that they couldn't even share a spoon or a napkin with them because it would automatically put them outside of God's presence in some way. But that is really just a symptom of this deeper root cause, that they did not want to in any way associate with this group of people. And so when Jesus is at the well at the hottest part of the day and a woman, a Samaritan woman, comes up to him in a setup that former President Mike Pence, or Vice President Mike Pence would not have been comfortable with. He says, can I have a drink? And her response is like... <laughs> Bro, are your arms broken? Like, you're sitting at the well. You could have done that. So there, there's, there's something more going on here. It's like, why are you asking me for a drink? And so Jesus explains. Everyone who drinks this water, pointing to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus starts talking in in what sounds more like a Zen koan than something that you might hear a Jewish rabbi say, or something that we would come to expect a straightforward person to to say in conversation. Jesus gets sort of enigmatic here and mysterious. What is he talking about? And so the woman responds, Sir, (laughs) give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now she interprets this literally. She thinks that Jesus is offering her a source of water that is going to uh, kind of hack her situation so that she doesn't have to come to this well to draw water day in and day out. But there's more going on here than just the practicalities of, of walking with a heavy jug of water back to your home. The reality is, is that this woman is, is here by herself at a time of the day that she would ensure that she was there by herself rather than being there at a time of day in the morning when it was cool when other women would be there. And we see here that this woman is trying to avoid this situation. She's trying to avoid coming into contact with her own void. And Jesus, being in this moment something far more than we can even understand or 
properly give language to. This is Jesus in some sort of prophetic way, in some deep inner knowing that Jesus had about this woman and her story that he had never met before, responds like this. He told her, go call your husband and come back. She says, I I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no, no husband. In other words, you're telling the truth. Thank you for telling the truth. Next slide. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, there's all sorts of things that could be said here at this moment, and those are different sermons for different days. But the reality of what's happening in this moment right here is that Jesus is giving, is presenting this woman with an opportunity to claim her own story, to tell the truth about where she finds herself, to name and touch the void that she lives with in order for Jesus himself to fill it. And this is what in many sort of practical implications and applications of what this passage means one I want to hold on to, to for us this morning is, is simply that what, what's happening here and what this means for you and for me is that Jesus fills the voids that we want to avoid. These deep places where we thirst for wholeness, for love, for meaning and purpose, for belonging, for relationship, these deep, deep places within us, these well-like places within us, Jesus steps into the void with himself and fills those places in you and between us with his presence and with his love. And so the question, practically speaking, that we can glean from this story is how exactly does Jesus do that for her and for you and for me? How does Jesus fill that void? He fills it with himself. And what is Jesus himself full of? Well, in the prologue to John's gospel, where he kind of sets the frame and the lens through which we are to read the whole of this biography of Jesus' life, he gives us an insight into what Jesus is full of. And John says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus is the fullness of grace, and Jesus is the fullness of truth simultaneously. This is one of those weird Christian mysteries that are, or paradoxes that are, that are difficult to explain that you just have to hold on to in unresolved tension of what 
does this mean? That Jesus is not some fraction of grace and some fraction of truth in order to make the whole picture, but that Jesus himself is the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth at the same time, always and forever, always has been, always will be. And the problem is that when we don't know how to hold this tension for ourselves or between us, we tend to prioritize one at the detriment of the other. And so some of us have grown up in traditions or been around people where the emphasis has been on the truth. That when we find ourselves in situations where morality or ethics are sort of at play and and things are, are... fragile and broken and complex and messy. We stand on the truth. We have to tell people how it is and what it is and what God stands for. And if you don't stand for this, then you don't stand for anything. And if you saw this branch off, you're gonna, the whole thing is going to come tumbling down. And we, we push grace into the background. Maybe it's there, but first we lead with truth. But that's not the Jesus way. That's not what Jesus does in this story. Jesus leads first with grace. He makes her an offer. He explains about what's happening and what's going on. But if we lead exclusively with an emphasis on grace and we put truth in the background, we run into a ditch on the other side of the road. Because that's not the Jesus way either. Jesus also here presents an opportunity for her to step into the truth. There is something off, something broken, and we don't know what that is. It's all speculation. But there is some void that Jesus presents her with a mirror to name and to live into and accept that truth. And Jesus, in the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth, holds both of those together while holding you and I together. And why does this matter? How is this not just some theological exercise? It matters profoundly, my sisters and brothers. Because what this means for you and for me is that you and I are both fully known and fully loved in our shame in our brokenness, in our sin, in our despair, in our hopelessness, in our fragility and futility as human beings. That Jesus knows fully the extent to which we are broken and twisted and distorted. And Jesus doesn't shy away from that. That doesn't repulse Jesus. It doesn't cause Jesus to hold us at arm's length. It actually is the very basis then for Jesus' love, full love, complete love, whole love for you and for me. It matters that Jesus is full of both grace 
and truth because we need to be loved fully with grace and with truth in the reality of our brokenness, of our mess that we make of ourselves and of the world around us. We need to be reminded and we need to come into contact with the fact that Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth. The uh, psychotherapist Kurt Thompson helps us understand what this looks like in his magnificent book, The Soul of Shame, where he writes that our vulnerability, which is our ability to be, metaphorically speaking, naked and unashamed before God, to be fully known and fully loved before God, ultimately, our vulnerability is ultimately to potential abandonment. This is why we get so afraid of being our vulnerable, broken selves before other people because we are afraid that this is going to be the same song but a different verse of somebody else who we love and need their love who is going to step away from us in some way. Or that we are going to pour out our love into someone or something and it may be for nothing. This potential abandonment of which shame is the herald is simultaneously, this is the good news, both the source of all that is broken in our world, that we hold each other in mutual suspicion and we're shaming each other and judging each other and all, all of these things. This is both the source of all that is broken in our world as well as the very sight of our redemption. Jesus steps into this place of our shame and our, our vulnerability with grace and with truth. And in that place, if we receive the love and grace and truth of Jesus in that place, it transforms us to be people who live without judgment, without shaming, without condemning other people in the world. And can you imagine if we took this seriously? If we, if we actually attempted in some way to live into this in deeper ways, that if we actually trusted that in and before Jesus Christ, we are fully known and fully loved, and we have everything that we need, so much so that is going to erupt in us like a spring of eternal life that will just continue to flow and flow. There's life, and, and our, we will have the satisfaction in Jesus that we need so that when we show up in relationship with other people, whether it's our, our family, our coworkers, people in this community, people in the city, people who are different from us, people who we want to avoid, maybe we could show up to them like Jesus shows up to us. Maybe we can show up for them in the ways that Jesus shows up for us with the fullness of grace and truth. And I think one of the, the possibilities of what this could mean for us as a community as we are seeking to, in our own way, be a part of creating a Jesus community that the next generation wants to be a part of. That there was a, a study recently done by the, by the Barna Group who surveyed uh, Gen Z, which is the, the sort of young adults who are coming up 
of coming of age right now. And they said, what is it that you most long for from, from the church, from Jesus' people? And here's what the next generation said that they want. They said 72% of Gen Z names listening without judgment as the most desired characteristic from Jesus' followers. What would that look like for you to, in your own time, in your own space, to show up yourself in prayer, in community, around the scriptures, before God to be fully known and fully loved so that you might be able to show up for someone who just needs you to listen to their pain and their confusion and their brokenness without you trying to fix it or correct it or judge it or just simply listen to it. And let me remind you that physiologically speaking, that to be listened to is the exact same sensation and feeling as being loved. And maybe this type of listening, this type of loving, might be what somebody needs to say, you know what? Here's what's actually going on. And for them to come back into alignment with the truth of how they were made, with who made them. And so, here's a place to start this week. I invite you, I encourage you, to name your shame to somebody. That thing that you're trying to avoid in one way or another, whether it's to a spouse or partner, to a trusted friend or colleague, uh, to one of our incredible pastors that we have here on staff, to your small group, what if you were to take something that you're holding, that you're avoiding, to someone and to name it? Somebody you trust will be gracious to you. And while we have, um, we have people in our lives who we pay for these types of services, therapists, uh, spiritual directors, um, coaches, whoever it might be, I invite you to, to take this to somebody where you don't have to pay them for the service of being gracious to you. Uh, because this is, this is a costly thing <laughs> that you're being asked to do. And, and grace is not cheap, uh, but it is free. And so this is something that has been freely offered to us that we are invited to freely offer to one another. So I invite you this week to, in some way, name your shame to somebody who you trust and hear the words of grace and truth of God's love spoken over you, that you, my sister, my brother, that you are the beloved of God, that you are fully known and you are fully loved by Jesus. Amen.